Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Yes, I studied in Rome uh, with Dr. Ashey, and I think it was my experience as a student in Rome, not to mention my undergrad experience at Thomas Aquinas College, that made me really wonder and search what my role was in the church. And by the time I got to Rome, I was surrounded in most of my classes by seminarians and priests, um, people in different other committed apostolates, there was the occasional layman like Don, or Dr. Ashy, excuse me. And, but I kind of was trying to figure out what I was doing there. And at the same time, John Paul II was talking about the new feminism. And what I found was that the, the, the people who initially took that new feminism, and remember, when the popes write, frequently it's they're proposing something, and then it's up to us, it's up to the church, to take it and run with it and develop it. Obviously, in consistency with um, church tradition and church teaching. So what I saw at the time was that the people who were talking about new feminism were a very particular group of women. They were women with um, graduate degrees, women who had high-level jobs, uh, women who were married with lots of children who, between they and their husbands, made enough money to have people come in and do the things that they wouldn't be able to do if they were working outside of the home. And so that was a pretty narrow group of women. And one of my friends who was not in that situation, we were ha- you know, hashing this over as we're, she's pushing a stroller across Piazza Farnese or someplace, maybe Trastevere in Rome. And she said, Pia, it's an elitist feminism. And I thought, that's interesting. And that thought has always, it, that thought stuck with me because it, it just reinforced that it was one expression of the new feminism, but it wasn't being expressed in a way that applied to all women, and that included students like myself, others who were married, people in religious and consecrated life. So I I was looking to figure this out. At the same time, I was in these classrooms, and you know, you also dress in black, even if you're not a cleric in Rome, it's kind of like New York. It's just, that's what people do. Plus, as a student, it's just, I mean, it, it keeps your clothing budget very low. And Rome is a dirty city, so nothing shows up on dark colors. So come to the, the point of the doctor, I was living as a lay student, which meant I didn't have a, a nice college or residence to go back to, which would have had a library and a place to study. And I found in the fine print of the university that doctoral students had a right to a desk in the library. Now, for someone who was sharing an apartment with three other women, two bedrooms, my own desk in the library sounded amazing, right? So I went to the university and I said, this desk, you know, here in the handbook. And they were kind of shocked because nobody had ever asked for it before. And they were great. They, they gave me a desk. And it was funny because it, I was on this floor with philosophers and canon lawyers. And they were very concerned that, you know, the, the, I didn't have a very good lamp. Somebody went and got me a better lamp. And I was just grateful to have a desk. And during that time, I remember one of my professors saying, you know, having you on the floor has really changed it. And I said, 
what do you mean? I mean, I've, I'm there, I'm hidden in the, behind the books. And he said, well, he said, we're all behaving better since you came. <laughs> and of course, my idea was, you know, they were great professors, canon lawyers and philosophers. I don't know, I just expected them behave, to behave well. But my presence there, <clears throat> he said, elevated them. Yet I was still struggling. And so I was painting my nails dark red. I was buying that really junky jewelry <clears throat> that they sell on the streets in Rome, really flashy because I, didn't, I knew I wasn't called to the priesthood, although I did have a story. One time I was at, um, I was at the baptism of a friend in Rome and, and at the American parish, and at the reception afterwards, one of the priests was talking to me, and he said, I think you have a vocation. Now, when you're a woman studying theology, you get that a lot, and it usually means a vocation to the religious life. And I said, oh, okay. And he said, yes, I think you have a, a vocation to the priesthood. So I said, oh, that's interesting. <laughs> I left it at that, but I didn't. And I found myself again in this environment where even with stupid things like nail polish and cheap flash earrings from the streets of Rome, <clears throat> I was looking for a place for myself. And, and how did I fit into this body of Christ? Now, the first thing is the body of Christ. What is it? We could give an entire graduate course on this. I'm going to give you a few bullet points. It's the risen Christ establishes his believers as his body, straight out of the catechism. This is not Turin. It's not you go to Turin and you see the shroud and there's the imprint of the body of Christ. That's not the body of Christ. It's far more dynamic. His, when in establishing his believers as his body, he is the head. And this is not you know, like in my big fat Greek wedding where the, the man is the head, but the woman is the neck, and the head goes where the neck wants it to. <coughs> Excuse me. This is a much more profound union, and actually it, is, it points to a one body, one flesh. It is a one body, one flesh union. And it points to a love story. And that's why Aquinas says that marriage, it, it, it analogously, marriage between men and women analogously participates in a marriage between Christ and the church because that's the type of union that we're looking for in marriage. We want that type of understanding. We want that type of sacrifice. We want that type of intimacy as that which exists between Christ and the church. And yet, the, the, within this body, there, uh, the analogy of body, I mean, it's, it's also a reality, and it's wonderful because it also reflects the, the diversity of the members. And the more, <clears throat> the more I got to experience the universal church, the more I began to realize how truly universe, di diverse we are, and yet we're all Catholic. And this idea of body, though, there's something kind of modern to it. Because up to, I would say, uh, recently in history, if something was wrong with your body, it's like, well, okay, I, I have a limp. That's it, you know. Um, I, uh, you know, my nose isn't quite right. That's it. And the modern concept, the focus on the body, or even hyper-focus, there's some truth to it, right? Now, now, I live in Orange County, which there's two things that happen in Orange, well, I live in, excuse me, I live in San Diego for a reason. Um, I teach in, in Orange County, and there's two things that happen in Orange County. One, you will be scared of any type of, of, of any type of uh, cosmetic procedure ever, because you see what happens. Uh, but two, at times, you're, you, you realize that you are a mere mortal, and in fact, your body is not perfect. 
But this, this fixation with the body of every part of the physical body being perfect, it, it points to, and, and again, I always like to try and find things in the culture that we can, that, that point to an eternal truth. So it points to this profound understanding, what it can point, can point to this profound understanding of the body of Christ in which every member is important. And every member needs to be perfected. And every member needs to grow in holiness. And as I mentioned, this is a love story, all right? And the Mother Teresa at the Synod for Religious, I think it was in 1994, um, and this might have been the Synod for Women Religious, not just Synod for Religious, but she got up to speak, and this was after many women religious had gotten up to speak about power and wanting a greater role in the church. And she got up and said, you all need to fall in love with Christ, who is your spouse. And that stuck with me when I went back to read uh, John Paul II's letter, Ordinatio uh, Sacerdotalis, which was the definitive letter on the ordination of women. Not going to happen. And I realized that part of the reason that we have these conversations about women in the priesthood is we're not looking at the relationship of, of Christ and the church or the mystical body as one of love, but rather one of power. And so when you're in a relationship that doesn't work, then you're focused on your rights, then you want power. If you're in a relationship that works, that truly is an expression of love, questions of rights and power fall by the wayside. And so it made me realize that we, how profound she was. Now, we talk about this also as the, 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 a mystery, a very, very profound mystery. And John chapters 14 through 17 give different, um, they're the Last Supper discourses, and it goes through different expressions of what, you know, the the relationship between Christ and the church, and yet we call it a mystery. Now, we, we know that the church lives from Christ, in Christ, and for Christ, but we also know something else. The sons and daughters of the church are not perfect. The goal, however, is to point to the reality in Christ. That is our work. The church is also the temple of the Holy Spirit, it is the soul of the mystical body, the source of life. And it is, its unity, again, is in authentic diversity. Now, before going on, I want to just back up for a second I, to the original love story um, at, at the Augustine Institute, and I'm pretty certain it's the tradition in Scripture studies here as well. You know, it's the, we, tell, we teach Scripture studies in the context of the narrative of a love story. So we have Adam and Eve in the garden. And what happened there is... They were promised love, and they chose power. And when they chose power, they lost love. And the more I reflect on this, I think that the punishment of Adam and Eve is actually something that the effects of that are that it hides who man and woman truly are. And so we end up um, as John Paul II pointed out, you know, men tend to manifest that in domination. And there's a line in which he uses in, Mulier, in Mulieri's Dignitatum, and he says that women have a tendency to close up in themselves. 
And I didn't understand that line until I found a book by Carl Anderson in which he unpacks that line and says, his perspective on that line is that it, it, to, to kind of close in and to see everything from our perspective, you know, whether, and, and whether it's dominated by the emotions or not, but there is a closing in. So the situation of women, I'm gonna look now more immediately at the past 100 years. We've had various types of feminism, uh, even, early, even before that. And many of these, though, were responses to men behaving badly. The early suffragettes, why did they want the vote? They wanted the vote because they wanted the vote because men weren't making decisions that made these women feel secure in their families. There were also issues of abortion, right? So the, the, this was the, the, the desire to want to vote again was in response to men behaving, behaving badly. And I'm not saying that's all men, clearly not. It's some men. That's a very vocal minority. And over the decades, I think that the, the, the real issues have been obfuscated. And we started out, I think the suffragettes raised great points. We had different philosophers coming at this. I mean, even back in the 18th century, Mary Wollenstonecraft, I mean, she was pushing for the equal education of men and women. And recently I heard somebody, you know, challenging some of these different thoughts as being communist-based. I think that they're also Christian-based because if, if you look at the church, the church is the first world entity to have the same right of initiation for both men and women. Baptism, right? The church is the first entity that says, hmm, maybe women should have a choice in whether they marry or who they marry. Maybe they should even have a choice to give themselves to God in spiritual marriage, right? Um, and it was the church that was the first widespread entity to, large entity to educate women. And in fact, I saw one of the first schools for women just outside of Rome a few years ago when I was visiting pregnancy help centers. That's another story, but the building's still there, and this is one of the first schools for girls. So I, I, the, the, some of these concerns, I think, are very, very valid. But then the issues got obfuscated. And Betty Friedan, who's kind of the grandmother of modern feminism, she wrote The Feminine Mystique. And she, years later, in 1981, she wrote another book. And in that book, now she's no social conservative. In that book, she said that the, that the movement had been hijacked by abortion rights and lesbian, lesbian rights. It was no longer about women. I think we've also had decades of being told, or maybe longer centuries, millennia, of being told that we're not good enough. And we're even told this sometimes in the liturgy. I recently wrote a piece responding to Father Dwight Longnecker, who's a great blogger, but he was talking about the feminization of the liturgy. And I thought, wait a minute, what's... And so he was pointing to all these bad examples of liturgy and saying that that's the feminization of the liturgy. And so, wait a minute. And said, why is it that feminine is a dirty word? You know, it's a little bit like the Dove commercial, run like a girl, right? And, and how we've taken the feminine to mean something negative rather than the feminine should, should, should reveal and indicate something beautiful and strong. And so I, I took him to task, and he was a gentleman and accepted uh, my points. But, you know, there were plenty of women that would agree with his points about liturgical abuses. And at the end of the day, the church is feminine. She is the bridegroom of Christ. So 
it would make sense that our liturgy should reflect something feminine in it, right? As well as the masculine. Regardless, the, we, there are so many ways in which we've been told that we're not good enough. And I have many friends who are raising children, and um, when they're asked what do they do, they say, well, I, you know, I'm a stay-at-home mom, I'm raising children. And the next question is, well, yes, but what do you do? And this, again, this points to, well, it, it points to so much. And more recently, in 2015, in February of 2015, the Pontifical Council for Culture held a plenary, their plenary session, so that's the annual session when the members, the, the cardinal and bishop members get together for their meetings. And they dedicated this, this session to women. And every session has a specific theme. Well, in the working document for this, this, um, for this session, they intentionally avoided the word maternity. And I was floored. In fact, they used the word generativity which, if I'm not mistaken, in classic philosophical thought, your Aristotelian thought and so forth, that's applied to men. But they used the word, they, they were not going to talk about maternity. And having lived in Rome for six years and going back lots of times, I'm familiar with Rome, and I just, I thought, are you kidding me? I mean, go down the stairs, stand in front of your office, look up the street, and, and I mean, it's the, the church. I mean, she may be called St. Peter's, but we still call her she, all right? And um, during the press conference to launch this, they had a group of women. One, uh, one was a famous actress, the other were all successful businesswomen. And they were told, <coughs> one, of, one of the journalists asked, well, there's no stay-at-home mom among you. Why is that? And the actress uh, replied, well, motherhood is something that we all do. And I went, hmm, foul. No, because motherhood is something that you are. It's who you are. Just as paternity is something that you are. It's who you are. And I'll go into that a little bit more. But my concern is that we've been really, really reduced to body parts. And I think there was no better evidence of that than cultural evidence of that than um, June 2nd of this past year when Bruce Jenner introduced himself as Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair. And so suddenly to be a woman meant that you had a pair of falsies and some hair extensions and makeup. And he even said in his interview before he transitioned or before he completed his transition, he said, you know, I can't wait to be a woman so that I can um, paint my nails and, and drink wine with my girlfriends. That's what it meant to be a woman. And it, it, it was parts. And in his case, I mean... He said that he still kept the male parts. So, you know, it gets very confusing when we reduce to parts. So now I want to, we've looked at the cultural. I want to take a little bit of time to look at what the church and what scripture says. And we're going to do a little bouncing around here because that's the way my brain works. Um, first of all, I want to start with Mary Magdalene. And what I love about Mary Magdalene is what St. Thomas Aquinas calls her. He calls her, calls her Apostola Apostolorum, the apostle to the apostles. And the reason he does this is because it is she to whom the risen Christ appears. And what does he do? He tells her to go and tell the apostles that he has risen. He chooses a woman to do this work. Pope Francis recently noted in one of his, I think it was one of his audiences, 
that how striking this is too, because at the time that these um, that these records were being collected, which we now know as as the Gospels, it was women were not considered a, a legal witnesses for for purposes of, of court or any legal matter. So. If the, the writers of the Gospels were writing these Gospels and just wanted to keep everybody, say, yeah, you know, Jesus fits with what we're talking about. There's nothing, you know, nothing different here. Just come along, jump on board. They would have never, never included that Mary Magdalene was the first recorded person to whom our Lord appeared. They would have never made her a witness. That was yet, it was yet another way in which Christ broke tradition. Um, at the crucifixion, we know that there are women at the foot of the cross. And there's some speculation that the one man that's there, John, the beloved disciple, that he wouldn't have been there if he hadn't had the Blessed Mother, Mary, to sustain him, that he needed her. He needed her strength in order to be there. I look at the Last Supper, which is also uh, very fascinating because in that, we know that, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is close by. We, know, we can presume that she and other women relatives have prepared the Passover feast for 32 years of his life. And here he's 33, and he gathers the apostles, and he sends a couple of them to go and prepare the feast. I mean, he's essentially, I don't know, we don't know if he told them to go and hire people to prepare the feast, or if he told them to go and actually take care of the work, but they're kind of doing women's work, right? So he's, he's making some very distinct breaks there. The woman at the well in John 4, she's the woman who, to whom Christ reveals himself as the Messiah. She's the only woman in all of the Gospels, to whom, the only person, excuse me. And everybody's running around. I mean, Peter's asking, all the apostles are asking, are you the Messiah? Are you, you know? And it's to this sinful woman that he reveals himself as the Messiah. And I'll leave it to the psychologist to analyze that, that passage, but I think that there's something that, you know, John Paul II says that, that women, um, women have an ability to see the person, and I think there was something of that manifested in, in her witness to him, because she, was, she took in his message, and, and, and she says, I know that the Messiah, he is the one to come, and Jesus responds, I am he to this woman who's not even a Jew, right? That's profound. Backing up uh, to Cana, right? It is a woman, namely his mother, that launches his public career. And when, you, when I've gotten into discussions with Protestants, they, they find that text in there indicative of the fact that Mary really didn't know what she was about. Because when Jesus says to her, woman, it is not my hour yet, they say, well, look, Jesus himself is reprimanding her. And I always say, well, come on, let's, let's read to the end. Because you, you can't, in scripture and in anything related to the church, don't isolate one text, one passage. You've always got to look at the tradition. And so and we understand, we, we see that fulfilled at the crucifixion when Mary, is, the mother of Jesus, is standing with, with John, the beloved disciple, and Jesus says, woman, behold your son. And to, to John, he says, son, behold your mother. And so this idea of woman, she is standing in as the universal woman, the paradigm of all women. And 
backing up again, Mary and Zechariah at the beginning of, of Luke, the first chapter of Luke. I often think that the Holy Spirit has a sense of humor because uh, of the way that things are written. And so you read the first chapter of Luke and the angel Gabriel comes to Zechariah, says, you know, your wife who's been unable to have children. By the way, it, it says in there that uh, Zechariah and his wife have been praying to have children, okay? And he says, um, and, and he's a priest and he's in the Holy of Holies, right? So if anyone's gonna believe, he should believe. And the angel appears to him and says, um, your wife is going to conceive and bear a child. And so Zachariah says, how is this possible? And um, then the angel explains it and he says, and, and, and Zachariah's answer is, yeah, not possible. So the angel says, fine, you're not gonna talk for a while. <laughs> and his next though, the next visit is to Mary, this young girl. 13 years, 14, very young. And he gives her an even greater message, right? And he tells her that she is to become the mother of God. Everything rests on her consent. She has to say yes. If she doesn't say yes, this isn't happening. And she asks the same question that Zachariah does. How? How can this be possible? And he, uh, he, he answers by um, it, when, in his answer, explaining that the Holy Spirit will come upon her, she says yes. Now, she said yes to something that was bigger than herself. She said yes to having God incarnate in her. And that idea, I think it's, it's just fascinating to see these two dialogues paralleled in one, the same chapter, and the very, very different responses. And almost as if to say, you know, to give Zachariah, poor Zachariah, a kick in the butt, the, the scripture says that, when, that, that the angel told Mary that her cousin Elizabeth was expecting. And so what does Mary do? She gets up and goes. She believes. The angel tells her that her cousin's pregnant, and she's okay, and she's off to take care of her. So there's a, a huge amount of action here. Now I'm going to back up a little bit further to the, um, to the Old Testament. And I like to say the battle of the sexes began in Genesis, right? And we have, um, we have the, the man and woman are created, both the first Genesis narrative and the second Genesis narrative. They're both created in the image and likeness of God. They're both, it's both man and woman who are created. And so there, the differences, John Paul II pointed out, existed before the fall. The battle of the sexes, the tensions, are a result of the fall. They are a result of sin. And one of my, when I was in college, um, one of my many on-campus jobs was working in the kitchen. And so uh, when you have egghead students that are reading too much, that's a great place for them to work. But their conversations also get pretty heady. And so, of course, um, our conversations about, were about, you know, which sex is superior. And one of the kitchen supervisors, who's now a fantastic priest, he said, well, it's clear. Women, women are the most perfect. And I said, why? And he said, well, because God created everything in the order of, from the least perfect to the most perfect. And Eve, or woman, was the last thing that he created. And to back that up, um, every time in Scripture there, when in, in Genesis, when Eve is described as a helpmate, and again, in our secular, Western, dare I say, Protestant-influenced um, 
society, when we see her helpmate, we're like, ah, she's going to take care of the dishes, keep the bed warm, and, you know, make sure that the kids are cleaned up. Well, that's not what it means there. The term there, it's a, it's a Hebrew term, Ezer Neged, and it's used 17 or 18 other times in the Old Testament, and every time it's used, it's to, form, to signify a form of divine assistance. So, woman was created as a form of divine assistance for man. And there are, I'm going to just focus on two examples from the Old Testament, although there are many. One that intrigues me the most is Miriam, the sister of Moses, right? And so we know that the Pharaoh doesn't want any male Hebrew babies to be born, or at least not to survive birth. And yet the, um, the, the Hebrew women keep giving birth to babies that survive. And so you have the midwives say, you know, he, he calls the midwives and he says, why, why is this happening? And the midwives say, well, you know, these, these Hebrew women, they are so strong. They just, they have their babies before we get there and there's nothing we can do. And yet Moses' mother knows that he can't live. So she puts him in the, the, the basket, whatever, the, what's the right word? Anyway, she puts him in the basket, reed, the reed basket. There we go. But what's interesting is that there's one other person in that story, Miriam. And so she watches what happens. Where does the basket go? Oh, okay. The Pharaoh's daughter's out there bathing with her maids, and the Pharaoh's daughter finds it. Oh, this is beautiful. It's a baby. I need to find a good Hebrew woman to, to, to nurse it. And here comes Miriam. And she says, you know, I know a Hebrew woman who could nurse him. And that's how Moses is returned to his mother for two years until he's weaned. So again, the, this, this genius of women, the, the, the unique role, I think, is, and even in a form of divine assistance is shown there. We're not going to get into... Miriam had problems later on, but that's a different story. We're not perfect. The last example I'm going to finish with here in terms of the Old Testament is Judith, and that's because spending years in Italy, um, the Italians have kind of a, they have a thing for, for Judith and Holofernes. And it points to the, I, I think, an, a cultural appreciation of the strength of women, because the depiction of the decapitation of Holofernes is everywhere. Every major Italian museum is going to have this gory picture. And yet, to me, yet every depiction shows her as utterly feminine and yet very, very strong. And so, again, and, and she helps to, libera to, to liberate Israel. This is a woman, all right? And, and again, kind of living that form of divine assistance. So let's jump forward now. As I said, we're doing this a little piecemeal. Um, maybe it's an indication of my own ADHD, but oh well. Jumping forward, Paul VI at the close of the Second Vatican Council said that the future of the world depended upon women. And that sounds pretty huge. I mean, that the future of the world depends upon women. This is after we've just had this huge council to talk about, you know, the problems in the church. And contrary to what some people believe, there was not a golden age before Vatican II because the Pope doesn't count a call, call a council so that the bishops can pat each other on the back and say, wow, everything's going really well. Okay, Councils are called because there are problems. And I'll leave that to your history professors to go into more if you want to join the queue. But the, 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 one of the solutions is that women, that the, the future of the world depends upon women. Now, when John Paul II became Pope, for those of you who have been to Rome, and those of you who are going to Rome, because everybody has to go, 
and you will go. Um, in, in the piazza there, right in front of St. Peter's, the, there was no depiction of Mary. And so it, now there is. John Paul II took, um, he had a mosaic put, and so there's this kind of angular wall coming out from the Apostolic Palace. And so if you're facing St. Peter's, it's on the, the right, and this is why I should have used PowerPoint. Anyway, he took that mosaic, and that mosaic actually is a picture, it's a replica of a, an image of Our Lady inside um, St. Peter's on a column that survived the fire that destroyed the first St. Peter's. So it's very profound, this continuity. And John Paul II also clearly spent a lot of time talking about women. One of the significant things that I want to point out is that in terms of talking about women in the priesthood, when he, after Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, he stopped talking about women in the priesthood. And his whole conversation shifted to Mary. There was a letter to women, there's um, Mulieris Dignitatum, most importantly, or most significantly, I think, Evangelium Vitae number 99, in which he talks about the genius of women. And he says, again, it depends upon women to transform the culture. And I think Dr. Newton gave us a lot of, it, a lot of reasons for last night. Interestingly, in that um, passage, in that same passage describing the, the genius of women, he also addresses women who have had abortions. So I'll leave that to you to, to ponder. But there is this tradition of, of strength, and we see that in, in the, the history of the church. We see that in scripture. We see it in the art. Sometimes I think a lot of that has to be recovered because we've lost that sense of strength. So talking about women as having a role in every aspect of society, um, it's been, this has been emphasized throughout several documents. Um, there was the most there was the Congregation for Doctrine and Faith released the, the document on the collaboration of men and women in 2004. And as I was sharing in the breakout session last night, when that document came out, it was end of July, beginning of August, and the headlines were, you know, church wants women barefoot and pregnant. And then they would quote unnamed sources in the Vatican. And again, having lived in Rome, including during the summer, I happen to know that there are no sources or experts inside the Vatican at the end of July or any time in August. The only people for the Vatican are the guards and the people that keep the, the restrooms clean, all right? So those, anyway, it, there was a spin on that. But the document emphasized again that women need to have a role in every aspect of society. And Pope Francis just, again, reiterated this in his apostolic exhortation that came out last Friday. And that obviously the primary role of women, for most women, is as biological mothers. But that there is this need uh, for women to be in the world. Why? Okay, so I'm gonna, now we're gonna get a little bit more philosophical and even metaphysical. So men and women have the same souls, right? The same type of souls. And, but we have different bodies. We have sexually differentiated bodies. And our, the, the union between body and soul is, is, is completely perfect until we die. Now, the, that soul is informed through a sexually differentiated body, right? And so 
it could be possible, this is the, 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 the graduate work that I did, that women come to know in a way that is, that is different but complementary to men. And there's a lot in the work of Aquinas to draw this out. Where I'm going with this, though, is to point at the fact that the, the fact that we have a body, whether it's a male body or a female body, is of dire importance. It's not just about what we choose to do with our genitalia. That's, quite frankly, sexuality, that's just one minor part of sexuality. Sexuality is meant to permeate everything about us, right? And we see that in the, in, in the vocation to marriage, there's, there's, a, there's a spousal relation. We also see that in the uh, religious vocations, it's, it's considered a supernatural spousal vocation. Um, but I, I want to point back to the body, and, and this is really following on Dr. Newton's uh, concept of maternity, the transcendental maternity. So I think that, at, that what is unique to women is that every woman, in virtue of her body, in virtue of who she is, body and soul, is called to live maternity. And it doesn't mean simply in the, in, in the biological sense or even in the, in the spiritual sense, but in every part of her being. And I would say similarly for men. By the way, I, I wanted to comment that I love that the, our conference on women has a man in, in the logo there because you can't talk about one without the other. And so going with this, um, and, and be patient with me, going with this idea, I want to say that the conversation is no longer about doing. All right? and, and John Paul II saw very wisely that we spent hundreds of years talking about whether or not women and men can do the same things. They can. We know that. I, I, and I frequently berate one of my brothers by telling this story, but the one thing that um, he insisted that he couldn't do was change the diaper of one of his children. And when left to his own devices, he managed. All right? Men and women can do pretty much all of the same things, and sometimes women even excel. That's no longer the question. The question is about being. How is it that we exist as man or woman? And how is it that that affects what we do? Now, a few years ago, I was at a conference for maternal feminism at Columbia at Barnard College. And the idea was to get women, feminists from all different backgrounds together to agree, just agree on the maternal aspect of feminism. Well, guess what? When you get a whole bunch of women who already disagree into a room, there's not a whole lot of agreement. So we, we had um, the head of NOW telling us her view, then we had other people telling us their views. And one woman got up during the Q&A and she said, every one of you in this room can make a better peanut butter and jelly sandwich than I can. None has the relationship with, and she named off each one of her children. None of you has the relationship with them that I have. And that's what mother was. It was that relationship. So th there's a lot to unpack here. I want to be respective of time. But Ratzinger pointed out that a woman has a role as friend, companion, mother, even apostle, as we saw in Mary Magdalene, but fundamentally in bride. And the church is the bride. And the vocation of women is to imitate, to model 
what it means to be bride, what it means to respond to Christ. And again, go back and read scripture. Look at the feminine. It's much different than the male response. Now we need both, obviously. But the feminine has a unique, what I would call bridal response. And again, it's based on this concept of maternity. We have different experiences of being human, um, but ultimately it's to lead to a oneness, a type of marriage. And it's marriage either with another human being, um, uh, marriage on the supernatural sense in terms of a religious vocation. There's also, we talk about the spousal relationship of the soul to God. And this idea that, that the fact that women have the gift of modeling bride is, means, to my mind, that women have the ability to witness, well, not only to my mind, sorry, this is, <laughs> but also throughout the, through the magisterium, that women have the ability to witness what it means to be church. And for too long, we've been talking about, well, how do we get women chancellors? How do we get women to have more power in the church? All right, again, if we're talking about power, then we're leaving the love story behind. It's no longer a love story, it's a different story. All right? And if that's what you want, fine. But I think most of us are inclined towards the love story. And what it does, though, is that it challenges us to think about what is the church? Is the church the four walls of the chancery? The four walls of the parish? Or is it something bigger than that? And if it's the body of Christ, which it is, then we're talking about the, the, uh, women having a hugely, hugely impacting role. And I want to caution you not to limit the, the discussion of the role of women in the church to these ecclesiological functions. Most men aren't even called to them, all right? But we are all called, men and women, to the body of Christ. And a couple of years ago, Tina Fey, or no, excuse me, um, Lena Dunham, the producer, one of the producers and actors of Girls on HBO, she did just a very crude uh, take on Adam and Eve in the garden for HBO, and so, or not for HBO, excuse me, for Saturday Night Live. And there was a huge pushback from conservatives. And I thought to myself, yes and no. All right, I don't, I don't agree with her portrayal, and the more I re read about it, the more my heart goes out to her. But look at the impact that she has had in shaping the ideas, particularly of young women. Look at other people in, in the entertainment industry. I mean, Tina Fey is a brilliant comedian. She's a brilliant writer. And she's actually written on, has some, a beautiful article on motherhood that she wrote for The New Yorker. Look at the impact that she has had. I think her impact has been better than Lena Dunham's. But when we're talking about impact, and if we want to talk about power, those women have more power than the, than the chancellor of any diocese. So we have to shift the conversation. First of all, I think work within a context of love. And secondly, if we want to talk about influence, we have to realize that there's this whole wide world outside of the four walls of our church. And all of us make up the body of Christ. All of us make up the church even when we're outside of those four walls. It's in our day-to-day -day life that we live the church. And so my challenge to you is to... I want to provoke you to think about ways in which women and men can better live their vocations as members of the church, as members of the body of Christ, 
outside of the four walls. Because that ultimately is our challenge. That, and it's our mission. We have been called to do this. So on that note, I, I, I will close. I understand that I've given you kind of a, a wide range. I've been teaching the course Women in the Body of Christ. I've done two sessions of it this semester, and my students always want something really neat and tight. They want a checklist. And there isn't one, because we are talking about things in which there is an element of mystery. The body of Christ is a mystery. The church, there's a mystery there. And mystery is, there's different senses of mystery. One sense is law and order, SVU, or CSI, and those mysteries are solvable. Those aren't real mysteries. Mysteries, when you read mystery in anything related to the church, it means that you're going to learn something, and then you're going to be able to learn more, and you're always going to be able to go deeper and deeper. You will never exhaust it. And it's like that story of St. Augustine when he was uh, getting ready to write his, or was writing his treatise on the Trinity, and he's walking along the beach, right? And he sees this little boy doing what I'm willing to bet almost everybody in this room has done at one time in their life. The little boy has dug a hole in the sand, and he's carrying water from the sea to put in the hole because he's going to fill the hole up with the sea. And so Augustine, you know, being very wise, says, you know, don't you realize that you, he asks him, what, what are you doing? So the little boy says, I'm, I'm trying to put the sea in the hole. And so, you know, Augustine's so wise. And he says, don't you realize you will never be able to do that? And the little boy looks up at Augustine and he says, and you, Augustine, will never completely understand the Trinity. So again, these are mysteries and they're meant to be, they're meant to be plumbed, they're meant to be lived, and it, they are a lifelong work. So I leave you with an invitation to the mystery. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.